This evening's talk is titled Through the Looking Glass, The Reality of Not-Self. And the looking glass being a reflecting mirror that one can step into, as in the story of Alice in Wonderland. Over a period of years, during my childhood and on through adolescence and into the teen years, I had a recurring dream many times. In these dreams, I would be standing, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, back and back and smaller and smaller. Myself, looking at myself in the mirror, seeing myself looking at myself in the mirror endlessly. I was quite amazed and uh, fascinated and at times intrigued. And if I thought very much about it, feeling kind of perplexed, but mostly just very interested. Interested enough, in fact, that it's the only dream that I clearly remember experiencing from my early years. The dream eventually wove itself into the very fabric of my life, beginning when, at the age of 16, I discovered the Buddhist teachings because of a paper that I was required to write in high school about religions other than Judeo-Christian. And right then I had the very distinct feeling of touching into a very deep sense of coming home. And the dream of looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, became the gist of the direction that my life has followed since. With this evening's talk, we'll explore the third of what are called the three characteristics, the three truths of all phenomena. The first being anicca, the constantly changing impermanent nature of all things, all situations, every relationship, every experience, and every phenomena that arises in our body-mind continuum. With the second universal characteristic being that of um, dukkha, meaning the ultimately unsatisfactory nature of everything in this world because of nothing being secure, nothing being sustaining in the outer world of experiences, relationships, places, situations, or material objects, and nothing sustaining in the world of all of our inner experiences of body and mind. None of it offering a sustaining sense of 
pleasure or happiness, but rather the dukkha, we could say, of the round and round of pleasant and unpleasant, seemingly good, bad, liking, disliking, the unsatisfactoriness or the dukkha of the rounds and rounds of conditioned existence, simply because of the very natural and ongoing mortality of all things. All phenomena being of the nature to change and to pass away, thus making it undependable in terms of giving any ongoing, sustaining satisfaction. This evening, we'll begin to explore the not-self nature of it all, the reality that for many people seems the most difficult to touch, to know, and to live. And for some, though it may be an intriguing reality, the thought, the imagined reality of not-self may often be fraught with a subtle or more overt fear. In its essence, this third characteristic, this third truth, is so basic, so simple, that with even just a taste of it, it makes our life so much easier to live. It's kind of amazing that So many of us are so fearful of stepping through or lifting the thin veil of concept, of an idea, of belief that separates us from the reality of no self or not self. Most of us live in and out of the idea, the concept of a separate solid, and even a static me, I, them, him, her, that, it. Within the context of our immediately, or our immediate bodily and mental experience, and within the imagined context of the possible future, or the evaporated past. It's true that stepping through the veil asks us to let go of the attachment to all of our clung to and cherished hopes, fears, and beliefs, to relinquish the attachment to all of our clung to and cherished self-identities. It's important, really important, to recognize that in relinquishing our attachments, we're not asked to throw ourself out. It's not about getting rid of what we think of as our self because it's a bad thing. What's really asked of us is to simply recognize that everything we think of as our self, everything we believe to be 
ourself. Everything we think of and believe to be other selves just simply doesn't exist in any independent, permanent, unchanging, solid, static, substantial way. Not even for one moment. One aspect of what we call self, and a primary aspect of self for most of us, is form, the body, rupa in Pali. This body, or rupa, is a subtle and yet clearly discernible phenomena that we can see and know through our practice. In truth, this body is made up of many elements, as I mentioned in my previous Dhamma talk, the Kama talk. The earth element with its characteristics of hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness. The water element with its characteristics of flowing and cohesion. And the fire element with its characteristics of heat and coolness. And the air or the wind element with its characteristics of supporting and pushing. With each and all of these elements being in constant flux. In and of themselves. And in relationship with each other. Our so-called self is in constant flux. The Buddha spoke about actions without an actor, doings without a doer. So, in truth, there's nothing to attach to, nothing to cling to. Essentially, all of the Buddha's teachings and practices lead to this. The Buddha refused to deal with things that didn't lead to the extinction of clinging to unreality, that didn't lead to the extinction of dukkha. He wouldn't discuss questions that didn't deal directly in some way with understanding confusion and anguish. He wasn't a teacher of philosophy. He was a teacher of life, a way of life, a teacher of the practices that directly lead to the experiential understanding of the truth, of the way of things. He was a teacher of peace, a teacher of a very practical path to peace. The essential aim of the teachings and practices is to look in the mirror at ourself and look with such sincerity, humility, and willingness that we begin to see ourself, or more accurately, begin to see through ourself by directly and essentially experiencing things in themselves, without all the layers of meaning that we invest in things, 
when we're attached to them. And without all the layers of meaning that we invest in things when we're identified with them. It's actually very simple. Maybe not so easy, but very simple. We're sitting. Pleasant is merely pleasant. Unpleasant is merely unpleasant. Heat is merely heat. Pressure is just pressure. Heaviness or lightness is just heaviness or lightness. Red or yellow is just red or yellow. Rising and falling is merely rising and falling. Remembering or memory is just remembering. Thinking is merely thinking. All of these things, these occurrences, are, we could say, merely, are just themselves. There's merely existing and rapidly changing conditions. Hot, cold, merely hot or cold. Merely being a person. In the realm of conditional existence, there's no true sustaining happiness. And in the same vein, we could say that there's no real sustaining suffering. It's because of self-grasping that we suffer. It's through the erroneous concept of self, of what the Buddha called the conceit of self, that we experience anguish and confusion. The Chinese sage Nan Shin said this, by not quite accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. We experience this and that, everything, anything. Can we keep looking? Can we keep looking to see that things are only just so much? Can we look into the mirror of our self without claiming ownership and without investing in interpretation? without investing a layer of meaning over top of what we see, experience, and know. So for instance, we think in terms of my foot, my arm, my nose, my hair, my breath, my pain, my thoughts, my joy, my fear, my friends, my house. This is some of how we create self again and again and again. This is how we become, how we know self. 
the Buddha had an amazing way of turning things right around. He taught that this isn't seeing self. It's in the understanding that they are not self, is seeing self. The looking glass of the Dhamma, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror. Myself, looking at myself in the mirror, seeing the truth of self looking at myself in the mirror. If we continue to investigate with willingness and humility, it's inevitable that eventually our habitual perceptions will change. The knot, the tangle, the tightly grasped belief that there's self and that things belong to self, will gradually untangle, will come undone. And when this erroneous sense of things is no longer our primary orientation to life, the opposite way of perceiving will quite naturally and steadily increase. Can we observe experience, inquire into phenomena without interpretation, without analysis or evaluation, but connect and sustain with a bare, simple attention, a non-interpretive, non-comparative attention? It's really only then that the observer, the so-called self, and what is being observed, what is being investigated, are no longer separate. No me and it. There's merely rising and falling, merely heat, merely an ache in the chest, or a tingling moving through the body merely a thought arising and passing. No duality, as it's sometimes called. Not two. Just this present moment being known, just as it is. Only by training oneself again and again in seeing and knowing the presently arisen thoughts, bodily sensations, and other sensed-or experiences, feelings, mind states, and perceptions as mere impersonal processes, can the power of deeply rooted egocentric thoughts, habits, and self-centered inclinations be loosened and broken up reduced, let go of or relinquished, and then finally eliminated. It's through the actual, not the conceptual, but the actual direct 
experiential confrontation with the fact of impersonality that we come to know self or not self or as it's sometimes spoken of no self and then finally or just for a moment it's not all about me and the painful contraction that accompanies me and mine that's based in the fear of losing something. For a moment, there's nothing, no thing to cling to. For a moment, the heart, the mind is free. And from the Buddha, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or me or mine. Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the Dhamma. Whoever practices this truth has practiced all the Dhamma. Whoever realizes this truth has realized all the Dhamma. In a short piece, metaphorical piece from Stephen Mitchell, the poet and translator, his um, rendition of Narcissus. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before, in mirrors, in a thousand photographs, in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough with its long eyelashes, full lips, and stately nose sloping to a curious plateau near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot. Kneeling there, gazing into the so-taken-for-granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or a fish, it too rippled or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath, filled with a multitude of other moving, shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew the image would disappear. It's a heavy load, a burden to carry ourself around. This body and the myriad permutations of our thoughts, we really shoulder quite a heavy burden carrying around all the things of life in the form of thoughts, feelings, various opinions, perceptions, beliefs, believing that they're mine, me, myself. There's a sting that we sometimes feel, a kind of sting that we sometimes feel in hauling around all of the permutations of this burden with a sense of ownership 
and identification. The Buddha offered the metaphor of seeing a poisonous snake, but if you don't pick it up, there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake, but the poison hasn't touched you, hasn't gotten to you. Can we know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it? Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in the world as it's appropriate. We keep looking and seeing, living life. And in fact, living much more freshly and fully right in the here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our practice right here in retreat and in our life outside of retreat. As we lift a cup and fill it with water, as we sit, receive, experience, and notice, as we receive and simply know the gap between the out-breath and the in-breath, for instance. In a poem by Buddhist uh, poet Jane Hirschfield that speaks to this, she calls it, Only when I am quiet and do not speak. Only when I am quiet for a long time do not speak, do the objects of my life draw near. Shy, the scissors and spoons, the blue mug, hesitant, even the towels, for all their intimate knowledge and scent of fresh bleach. How steady their regard as they ponder, dreaming and waking, the entrancement of my daily wanderings and tasks. Drunk on the honey of feelings, the honey of purpose, they seem to be thinking. A quiet judgment that glistens between the glass doorknobs. Yet theirs is not a false reserve of a scarcely concealed ill will, nor that other active shying of pelted rocks. No, not that. For I hear the sigh of happiness each object gives off as I glimpse for even an instant the actual instant. As if they believed it possible I might join their circle of simple, passionate thusness, their hidden rituals of luck and solitude, the joyous gap in them where appears in us the pronoun I. Our whole life becomes our practice when we begin to touch into the realization that nothing is really ours, that all things are constantly changing within themselves and in relationship to each other, that even this body 
is merely a collection of constantly changing interdependent elements and processes. Do I reside in the intestines or in the rumbling sensations therein? Am I in the thigh bone or the skin or the head hair or the softness inside the mouth? Is the breath the sensation of the in-breath me? Do I reside in the fluid vibration of the foot as it moves through space? Or in the sensations beginning in the heart and spreading out through the body as metta is offered to a dear friend? We might think, okay, maybe I'm not the foot, not the sensation of the in-breath. But certainly my mind, my consciousness is me. I mean, without my mind, without individual consciousness, who would I be? One of the things that most of us cling to, most tenaciously and unwittingly, is what we think of as our mind, our conscious mind. As these next words are spoken, let go of listening with the intellect, letting go of interpreting with the intellect, and just simply open and receive the words, just simply directly hearing. Where and what is it that we call mind? Where is the mind? Can you find it? Does the mind have a shape, a color, a texture? Is the mind in the body? Is it coming from somewhere outside of the body or from someone else? Do you find anything that we could call mind? Am I the mind? Is the mind me? What is the essential nature of mind? Is it different from the nature of body or from the nature of anything? The very nature of mind itself is that it's unformed, or as it's sometimes spoken of, unborn. It's without color, without shape. Look into your own mind. It's like experiencing zero, which might not be a very appealing sounding experience to many people. 
In the opening line of a book by mathematician Robert Kaplan, he says, when you look at zero, you see nothing. Look through it, and you see the world. Again, the Buddha, directly out of his own experience, turns our ordinary way of thinking about things upside down. Even our precious, our cherished individual consciousness is a conditional phenomena. It too arises and passes away, moment by moment. It too is dependent on contact, with some object through one of the six six sense doors, dependent on the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant that arises because of this contact. It, too, is dependent on the mental labels and constructs and clinging that arises in the conscious mind through contact. The Buddha offered a short discourse on the not-self characteristic, which is, in good part, a series of questions that we can take to heart as a practice that the Buddha repeated many, many times throughout his 45 years of teaching. And this is that short sutta. On one occasion, the Buddha was dwelling at Benares in the Deer Park. There he addressed the monks of the group of five and said this, Monks, material form is non-self. For if monks' material form were self, this material form would not lead to affliction, and it would be possible to determine of this material form, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. But because material form is non-self, material form leads to affliction. And it is not possible to determine of material form, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. Feeling is non-self. Perception is non-self. Intentional or volitional formations, meaning thoughts and words and actions, are non-self. Consciousness is non-self. And he goes through the, the whole process with each of these. For if monks' consciousness, consciousness were not self, this consciousness would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to determine of consciousness, let my consciousness be thus. Let my consciousness not be thus. But because consciousness is not self, Consciousness leads to affliction, and it's not possible to determine of consciousness, let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness not be thus. What do you think, monks? Is material form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent and unsatisfactory, is is what is impermanent unsatisfactory or happiness? Unsatisfactory or suffering, Venerable Sir, is what is impermanent, unsatisfactory, or suffering subject to change, fit and subject to change, fit to be regarded thus, this is mine, this I am, 
this is myself? No, venerable sir. Is feeling permanent or imper- and impermanent? Permanent or impermanent? Is perception intentional or volitional formations? Is consciousness permanent or impermanent? And he goes through the whole thing with each of these. Impermanent, venerable sir, is what is impermanent, suffering or unsatisfactory, or happiness. It's unsatisfactory or suffering, venerable sir, is what is impermanent, unsatisfactory and subject to change, fit to be regarded thus, this is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, venerable sir. Therefore, amongst any kind of material form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and any kind of consciousness whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all material form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and all consciousness should be seen as it really is, with correct wisdom, thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. And the Buddha goes on a little bit more with his monks and says, Seeing thus monks, the instructed noble disciple becomes disenchanted with material form, disenchanted with feeling, with perception, with volitional formations, disenchanted with consciousness. Becoming disenchanted, she or he becomes dispassionate. Through dispassionate, her or his mind and heart is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge it's liberated. He or she understands. Destroyed is birth. The spiritual life has been lived. What has been done has been done. There's no need, no more coming back to any state of being. This is what the Buddha said. Elated, these monks delighted in the Buddha's statement. And while this discourse was being spoken, the mind of the monks of the group of five were liberated from the taints by non-clinging. And then there were six arahants, six accomplished ones in the world. The conscious mind arises and passes away moment by moment, just like every other conditioned phenomena. Consciousness exists only in relationship to some object that it's in contact with through one of the six sense doors, no matter how gross or subtle that object may be. To make this very clear to his students, the Buddha spoke quite specifically about these six aspects or six doors of consciousness. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness. So it's from this perspective that the Buddha speaks about consciousness being conditional, 
and that because of this, it can't be, it can be one of the arising conditions that leads to suffering, that leads to unsatisfactoriness. There are two um, short uh, conversations in the Samyutta Nikaya that uh, the Buddha and Ananda have with each other, and I'd like to share these with you. Venerable Ananda says to the Buddha, Venerable Sir, it said, the world, the world. In what way is it said, the world? And the Buddha responds to Ananda, Whatever is subject to disintegration, Ananda, is called the world in the Noble One's discipline. And what is subject to disintegration? The I, Ananda, is subject to disintegration. Forms, eye consciousness, eye contact, whatever feeling arises with eye contact as the condition, that too is subject to disintegration. The ear, the mind, he goes through each of the sense doors. The ear, the mind, whatever feeling arises with mind contact, as the condition. That, too, is subject to disintegration. This ananda is called the world. And then Venerable Ananda asks the Buddha, Venerable Sir, says Ananda, it said empty is the world. Empty is the world. In what way is it said empty is the world? And the Buddha responds, It is ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self, that it is said, empty is the world. And what is empty of self and what belongs to self? The I, ananda, is empty of self and what belongs to self. Forms are empty of self and what belongs to self. I consciousness, I contact, mind consciousness, whatever feeling arises with mind contact, as the condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. That, too, is empty of self and what belongs to self. It is ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self that it is said, empty is the world. As awakening beings, can we begin to directly experience and know the changing, interdependent, and empty nature of all things? And again, the mirror of the Dhamma from the perspective of an an 8th century Chinese sage. Nature may be compared to a vast ocean. Thousands and millions of changes are taking place in it. Crocodiles and fish are essentially the same substance as the water in which they live. Humans are crowded together with the myriad other things in the great changingness. And our nature is one with that of all other natural things. Knowing that I am the same nature as all other natural things, I know that there is really no separate self, no separate personality, no absolute death, and no absolute life. 
and a wonderfully simple poem by Buddhist poet Jim Harrison. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, to assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy, joining at night the full sweet flow to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless flow. As we move into the last part of this evening's talk, I'd like to offer two brief guided meditations, beginning with the possibility of the mind opening to an image in relationship to the words that I'll be speaking. And if an image doesn't come easily for you, then simply allow a felt sense to permeate in relationship to the following descriptive words. So beginning with your eyes closed, and visualizing in some way, or in some way sensing, an enormous jeweled net. A net of infinite, of boundless proportions. And letting this fill your heart, fill your mind. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant crystal gems, each with countless facets. At each point where the strings of the net meet, there's a brilliant, highly reflective, multifaceted gem. And so each gem, each jewel, reflects in itself every other gem in the net, while at the same time its image is reflected in each of the other gems. In this image, this vision, Each jewel contains all the other jewels. To look at one jewel at any point is to see the reflection of all of the gems at all of the points in the net. A boundless net of beginningless, endless, radiating aliveness. And now, just let the image, let the felt sense dissolve.
the intricately interwoven, interdependent tapestry of life, with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. This is the relative side of selflessness, the relative side of not-self or no-self. This is the ground of understanding, the aspect of wisdom of not-self that compassion springs from. As awakening beings, we find that more and more often we act only from the heart of compassion because of a growing and pervading clarity of understanding that there is only relationship. There is only interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it. There's no separate, no isolated, independent you, no separate me. And from Shantideva, a century Buddhist monk. I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And now the second guided meditation. Again, it's helpful if you close your eyes. In the mind's eye, or the eye of wisdom, which is centered in the heart, visualize or simply open to a felt sense of a vast, clear, empty, endless sky or sky-like space. And really allowing yourself to relax, and staying open and present with this. And now beginning to picture a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in this space, this sky-like space. And the clouds are moving and changing shape and dissolving and new clouds appearing and disappearing. In this visualization or felt sense, let the openness of the sky, the vast openness, rest in the eye of wisdom 
and not fixating on any cloud. Just being simply aware, clearly aware of their arising, moving, changing, and passing away. If at any point all the clouds disappear, simply allow the vast, clear, empty, endless, sky-like space to rest in the heart, to rest in the eye of wisdom. And now let the image fade away and just sit for a moment letting the heart, the mind open wide, allowing mindful awareness to be spacious, not fixing any edges to it. And now for a moment, quickly turn the awareness around to look at itself. Not looking for anything, just aware of awareness itself. Knowing the knowing capacity of the heart, the mind. Who's aware? Who knows? And now bringing the attention back into the body, back to the breath, back to hearing, and just sitting quietly for a moment. As we learn to step back and open up and at the same time come close, come very close and face into the looking glass with willingness and humility, we begin to touch the empty essence of all things, the vast, open, empty essence that all things emerge out of and dissolve back into. We look in. We keep looking, whether we're standing, sitting, moving, or lying down. Our practice is to keep looking through the clear mirror of the Dhamma. And we see that everything, all things are arising, changing and passing away. We see that because of this, there is no 
thing that satisfies, no thing that brings pleasure, joy, or ease in an ongoing or sustaining way. We understand that we can't depend on anything in this world of our own body-mind continuum or in the world around us to render us really, truly happy and at ease. And we continue to just simply and humbly look in the mirror at ourself, going back and back into this looking glass of self. Mindful awareness becomes clearer and more open and more precise at the same time. Back and back to the source of itself. Back to the source of all things. Instead of finding some solid, static, separate something or some solid rendition of I or me, some fixed eternal entity, we get back to this vastness, this brightness, this vital spaciousness of heart, spaciousness of being. And in this, there's no solid, separate I or other. In this essential heart of being, or what is sometimes referred to as emptiness, There's an ease, the equipoise of a deep ease, even in the midst of the arising, changing, and ceasing happenings of life within us and around us. As long as we fixedly reside mentally in the realm of I, me, mine, and other, we're residing somewhere next door to reality. And it creates huge problems, the greatest problems, the greatest suffering we experience. We have a sense of being separate, being an isolated, separate entity. This is the cause of our fundamental pain, the cause of our fundamental suffering, the cause of the core loneliness that human beings feel. I'd like to share uh, a story, a true story, of a friend of mine um, who was suffering with this core loneliness. He decided to seek help from a therapist for the first time in his life at the age of 40. And with the advice uh, from some friends, he picked uh, a therapist who, who had a Buddhist spiritual orientation. And when he called to make the appointment, he was told by the therapist's secretary that it would be helpful if he would bring in some symbol of his problem, some symbol of his, uh, of his concern with him for this first therapy session. So he arrived at the therapist's office uh, toting a huge load of baggage, uh, all of different colors and shapes and sizes. And he set them down in the waiting room. And then he went out to his car, and he got another load. And he piled the first, second load on top of the first load. And he told me that, uh, and he told the therapist, he said, 
that he had to go around collecting baggage from friends and family because he didn't have enough baggage of his own. So when it came time to go into the therapist's office, he, of course, took all of his baggage in with him, and he piled it up on the floor between him and the therapist. And at some point during this first uh, therapy session, the, this uh, therapist, in her wisdom, asked my friend to open up all the baggage that he'd brought in with him. And he did this. And he found that there was nothing inside. Very wise therapist. <laughs> and it's not, of course, every client that you or every patient that you could do this with. But this man was obviously quite ready for such what we could call a pointing out. When we begin to taste the truth of not-self, when we touch into this simple reality, often at first there can be a kind of poignancy. And then at some point there can be a sense of entering into a measureless beauty. And often there's a feeling of relief, like finally putting down a heavy load that we've been carrying around unwittingly and not knowing the difference until we begin to recognize and to understand the load and its nature and just simply set it down. There's an old teaching story uh, about this that I really like. It's a story of a woman who had practiced for many years and it had some powerful and expansive and even some illuminating experiences. But she still hadn't reached the goal. And she was getting up in years and um, feeling that there wasn't much time left. And, And she so really wanted freedom in this life. So she decided to take herself up to the top of the mountain to see the wise one who she'd heard was able to turn the heart, turn the mind to the truth. And as she was nearing the end of her arduous journey up the mountain, an old man carrying a satchel on his back passed her on his way down the mountain. And just as he passed, the woman stopped and called out to him. And he stopped and he turned around towards her. And the woman asked him if he knew anything about the wise one who lived on the top of the mountain and explained that she was on her way up to see this being because she wanted to know the deepest truth, the ultimate wisdom, so that she could be fully awakened and free in this very lifetime. And she explained that she wanted to awaken and be liberated from all of the confusion and the anguish and the striving. And she told the old man that she'd heard that the wise one at the top of the mountain might be able to reveal the truth to her. The old man stood still, listened, looked at her briefly, and then taking his time, he slowly turned around and continued walking on down the mountain for just a few steps. And then he stopped again, and he briefly stood still, and then slowly turned around again towards the woman, facing the woman. And then he very slowly and carefully took the satchel off his back 
carefully set it down on the ground, turned around again, and walked on down the mountain towards the village. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it? Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in the world as it's appropriate. We keep exploring seeing and understanding, living life. And in fact, living life much more freshly and fully, right here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher. And so there are two wings of awakening with which we fly free. The wing of wisdom, the liberating equipoise of an unfettered, pure awareness in relationship to all of the phenomena that arises and passes through the six sense doors. This liberating wisdom that comes about through our experiential insight into the not-self nature, the empty essence of all things. And the other wing is the wing of compassion our heartfelt connection to beings, the ground of which is a profound understanding of the essential interconnectedness of all beings, all things. This being the relative aspect of understanding, not self. This wing of freedom, the wing of compassion, is that which connects the liberating understanding of the absolute emptiness of self to the relative nature of our humanness and informs the way we be, informs the way we act in this world. To truly fly free, we need both wings. I'd like to close the talk this evening with uh, two pieces from the collection of the Buddha's teachings called the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha. Seclusion is happiness for one content, who knows the Dhamma, who has seen. Friendliness toward the world is happiness for those whose hearts bend kindly to all beings. Serenity amidst the world is happiness for those who have let go of sense desires. But the end of the conceit, I am, is the greatest happiness of all. And the second piece from the Udana. In speaking with one of his disciples by the name of Bahia, the Buddha offers this teaching. In the scene, there is only the scene. 
In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus you should see that indeed there is no thing here. This bahia is how you should train yourself. Since bahia there is for you in the seen only the seen, in the heard only the heard, in the sensed only the sensed, in the cognized only the cognized, and you see that there is no thing here, you will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. As you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this nor in the world of that, nor in any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.